This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think we need to start out today's program with a quote. The quote, in this case, comes from the late and conservative Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger, who once said, The gun lobby's interpretation of the Second Amendment is one of the greatest frauds on the American people by a special interest group ever. The real purpose of the Second Amendment was to ensure that state armies, the militia, would be maintained for the defense of the state. The very language of the Second Amendment refutes any argument that it was intended to guarantee every citizen an unfettered right to any kind of weapon he or she desires. And so it is, this nation is yet again in a bit of an uproar over the fact that individuals armed with the weapons of war are able to go out and commit mass murder with ease. As you are no doubt aware, last Sunday night, concert in Las Vegas, a man armed with at least 17 firearms, including a handgun, which I think means in this case 16 rifles converted to automatic status, opened fire from a strategic position above a crowd and killed 59 people. And the count, of course, may go up because it's reported that 527 were injured either by gunfire or the flight to safety. Apparently this person fired from something like a quarter of a mile away down onto a crowd of 22,000 people. And as is usual in this all-too-common occurrence, politicians are offering things like their thoughts and prayers with the vic- to the victims, which is pretty much the same thing that's been offered in the past every time one of these things happened, which I think is pretty clear at this point, isn't doing a great deal to stop such things from happening. We don't propose to have all the answers here in Radio Parallax. We're just some people mouthing off about what we see as the follies of society, in particular, but not exclusively, U.S. society. But the evidence coming in seems to suggest that this individual was able to obtain a kit that allows you to take semi-automatic weapons, which are legal in the United States, and basically turn them into automatic devices. And of course, it's pretty obvious from the the sheer number of bullets sprayed down upon the crowd that even with 17 rifles and reloading, you you were going to have to use some large banana-type clips that carry lots of ammo. The NRA predictably has claimed that, uh, you know, semi-automatic weapons are useful for hunting. This man apparently also used a tripod to mount his weapons. And uh, people who wish to avoid this issue, which is I think anyone who's a politician, are saying things like, this is not the time to discuss this. And of course, (laughs) I think the rebuttal to that is, what better time is there to discuss this than now? a lot of side issues being raised here, too, on the screening of individuals, how it is you can get 17 weapons into a hotel room on a high, high floor, how it is that despite all these efforts in the country to locate criminals and terrorists, etc., this guy just was, was not on anybody's radar. I was also appalled, as I hope you were, dear listener, by the question they kept asking in the day after this event of, 
we don't, we, we don't have any insight into his motive. And I just have to ask, is there any motive? Had the murderer, and we're not going to call him the accused in this case, we're going to call him the murderer, not shot himself to death and come forward and, and in fact, had come forward to say, the reason I did this was X. That anybody would accept X as a valid excuse? Some people are coming forward to say, oh, yes, this is an act of terrorism. Well, he's not, quote-unquote, a terrorist by most definitions. But uh, since one of the sheriffs or law enforcement people in Las Vegas was saying, well, you know, this, I'll call this terrorism all day long. I mean, it induced terror in a lot of people. Usually terrorists some other, have a, some other purpose in mind. I mean, you know, the terrorist acts on 9-11 clearly had an agenda that they were directed towards. There seems to be no evidence of this in this person's case, although, again, one has no idea what went on, you know, between the ears of this individual. But the main thing about the national debate on this issue is that I think we're not going to have a national debate, as usual. Would it help to have background checks? Probably. The Republicans have made a lot of effort to make sure that you can't have background checks on people to ensure or to at least assist the process of the insane obtaining weapons. The NRA seems to want to insist that automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons here are still useful for hunting, but everybody knows that's BS. And everybody knows that if you do want to go hunting with a semi-automatic weapon, you don't need to have 60 bullets at your disposal. If you've got a clip that has 60 bullets in it, the purpose of that is to kill a large number of people in a short period of time. I think we're going to need to go to Jim Jeffries, who's the Australian comedian who's been quite outspoken in his criticism of America's attitudes. We'll play a clip from him in a moment. But I do want to note, just as a screwball aside to all of this, that over in Russia, you can now find on the streets of Moscow a monument to Mikhail Kalashnikov, the inventor of the AK-47. Described by The Economist magazine as one of the world's most popular and lethal weapons, it is believed to account for one-fifth of all firearms. We're going to have to check that statistic. I know that uh, other countries are licensed to make what was originally a Russian rifle. That's disconcerting, isn't it? People are pointing out that Australia, after a mass killing, outlawed shotguns and automatic weapons. And I believe semi-automatics as well, leaving people with the option of rifles, and I believe in some cases handguns. They haven't had a mass killing in Australia since then. I don't know. Pretty sad topic, so we're going to, I think, have to go to see what a comedian has to say about it. Sunday night, I'm sure you've already heard that a man took over 20 guns into a hotel room in Las Vegas and opened fire into a concert. 59 people were shot and killed and over 500 people were injured and the death count still may rise. This is the biggest mass shooting in American history. These are records we should not be trying to break. Now, I appreciate the fact that I have a platform where I can have my opinion heard every week. I don't take that for granted. Now, I'm sure that many people are tuning in to hear what I have to say about this tragedy. I have been very open with my opinions on the Second Amendment and gun control in this country. But I'm going to tell you now that I have nothing more to say. I've said everything I can. You know what needs to be done to prevent this from happening again. But we didn't change the laws after Sandy Hook. We didn't change the laws after the Pulse nightclub. And we're not going to change them now. So... 
if you think you want to do something, why don't you tweet hashtag pray for Vegas, Ch change the filter on your profile picture, post broken hearts on your Instagram, but know that you are literally doing nothing but pissing into the wind. This is our reality now. America, you let this happen. I dare you to prove me wrong. All right, let us return now to the topic of Russia and arms. Uh, because a very curious figure in world history passed away, who was really unknown to, uh, to the world until, I think, 1998. His name was Stanislav Petrov. And in the early hours of September 26, 1983, Petrov possibly prevented World War III. It is ultimately a happy story to have avoided the Third World War. So let's take a minute to talk about this man and the incident that did not make him famous until much later. Story goes like this. Lieutenant Colonel Petrov was working on that fateful night of September 26, 1983 uh, as a Soviet missile defense officer. He was on duty in a bunker near Moscow when alarm bells started to sound. Like the United States of America during the Cold War, the Soviets had a system set up to let them know if missiles were coming their way so they could plan a response. It should be noted that although the Soviet Union always said it would never use nuclear weapons first, the United States of America always said it might. And in fact, the U.S. of A. remains the only nation to have used nuclear weapons upon another nation. Something we should not lose sight of. But to quote from the Economist's obituary about Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, In the nervy 1970s and 80s, an American attack on the Soviet Union might happen at any time. An alert might be a practice or it might be the real thing. Either way, the motherland had to be defended. The base he was working at was the secret Serpukov-15 early warning facility near Moscow. He'd worked there since graduation with top honors from the Radio Technical College in Kiev. He was monitoring surveillance by OCO satellites of the, of the missile launch areas of the United States. On one wall in the computer room, an electronic world map lit up the American launch areas, six of them with a total of a thousand missiles aimed at the USSR. On that night in September of 83, at half past midnight, the red screen flashed start. A missile was coming. The siren howled in the room below. People leapt up from their seats. Everyone looked up at him. He was frozen. The message seemed odd. One missile would not mean the all-out attack they were expecting. But how did he know? Scared stiff, he roared at everyone to get back to work. When he managed to pick up the phone, he reported a fault in the system. But then it saw a second missile. A third, a fourth, a fifth. Probability of attack, 100%. In 10 minutes, ground radar could confirm it. But in 12 minutes, the missiles, if they were coming, would hit Russia. High command needed 12 minutes to organize their response. His hands shaking, he called his superiors again. Again, he reported a malfunction, not a strike. The officer at the other end was drunk, but somehow passed it on. Mr. Petrov then waited for 15 unbearable minutes, and nothing happened. There was indeed a fault in the system. The satellite had been fooled by the sun's rays reflecting off clouds high over North Dakota, which had two launch areas. Every time he remembered that moment, 
When his call proved right, his lean face would break into a smile of sheer relief. His coolness had saved the world from nuclear apocalypse, or so other people said. He knew that at the time, he had not been cool. His chair had felt red-hot as a frying pan, his legs limp as cotton. Some of his doubts were logical, the newness of the system, and the too swift passage of the message through the 30 layers of verification he had set up himself. Other doubts were vague, a funny gut feeling, and a sense that he knew better than the machine. Even so, his decision to declare a false alarm was a 50-50 guess. No better. Small wonder, though, when it was over, he felt as wrung out as Jesus on Golgotha. Note to the magazine, as for those military cockerels in the USSR, they were horribly embarrassed by what he had done. So were all those renowned academicians who had spent billions devising the surveillance system. They did not thank him for showing them up, for it was an old rule in Russia that the subordinate must never be cleverer than the boss. I think that's a rule everywhere, folks. Instead, they wrapped him for failing to fill out the operations log that night. Come on, he thought. (laughs) My hands were full. A few months later, Petrov left the army to take a job as a research engineer and to care for his ailing wife. His story stayed secret until 1998 when it came out. He was defeated by the West, he toured America, he starred in a documentary, and was commended by the UN and received the Dresden Peace Prize. Sometimes he enjoyed the fuss, but bitterness over his treatment at home would surface all the same. Go to the magazine, he was often touchy with reporters who made their way to his small grubby on 60th anniversary of the USSR Street in Fiorino, northeast of Moscow, and sat in his bare kitchen. He had done nothing, he would tell them, except his duty and his job, and all he had to show for it was the TV his colleagues from Serpukov 15 had given him when he left. It should be noted that uh, this story only was known by the world when it was published, when his former superior published his memoirs in 1998. The documentary in question is apparently named The Man Who Saved the World. If any of you, dear listener, have seen this, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and let us know what you thought. And I think I'm going to slip in another obit at this juncture because what the hell? It's my show. I can do it if I want to. We want to note the passing of actor Harry Dean Stanton, who bopped around Hollywood for years as a kind of consummate character actor. I understand that his uh, leading role in 1984's Paris, Texas won critical acclaim uh, and is well-regarded. I've I've not seen that. That's something else you can drop us a line in for Radio Parallax and tell us about, Uh, you know, your opinion of the movie Paris, Texas. But I, myself, will always love Harry Dean Stanton for his wonderful performance in Repo Man. Hey, Mr. Miller, can we play a clip from that? Paris, Texas or Repo Man? Repo Man. Got a name, kid? Yeah, it's Otto. Otto? Otto Parts? <laughs> hey, kid. Helping hand. You got a driver's oh, license? Yeah, you fucking A. We ripped your Let car, asshole. You want to know who told us where it was? Your goddamn brother. Are you really 21? So it says, doesn't it? Hey, you want some help with that beer, kid? You're all repo men. What if we are? You know, kid, uh, usually when somebody pulls shit like that, my first reaction is uh, I want to punch his lights out. But you know something? 
You just got to like the way Harry Dean Stanton delivers that last line. I want to do a little bit of follow-up at this point. We mentioned a while back that it was rather unlikely that there really would be a nuclear war with North Korea. Thank God. But I, I, I failed to point out the fact that it was our U.S. Defense Secretary, James Mattis, who had promised that any threat to U.S. territories or our allies will be met with a massive military response. I thought of General Mattis the other day when I found an old clipping that I had in some of the files we were using years ago. After that incident, back in 2005, when he testified before Congress, I believe it was, and said that in his opinion, it it was fun to shoot some people. I just want to pause for a moment and ask, how different is that from what this guy did down in Las Vegas? And just leave it go at that and move on. You know, sometimes it's got to be your duty to shoot somebody. I mean, if the SWAT team had gotten to that guy, that would have been what they're supposed to do. But I remain slightly perturbed by the fact that somebody would note that it's sometimes fun to do it. Then we have to do a little bit of follow-up on our uh, attack on uh, the tech giants that are taking over the world and taking over our lives. We went off at some length on last week's program about that. There was one little item I did not get to, which I think I will get to today. It's in the news and technology section of New Scientist magazine, in this case the August 26th issue. Piece by Helen Thompson noted the following. Our brains seem better at predictions than we are. Activity in a particular brain region can foresee whether people on a crowdfunding website will succeed even if we consciously decide otherwise. The findings suggest that neuroforecasting by scanning people's brains may provide ways to improve voting polls or even predict changes in financial markets. And we would add, or create all kinds of mischief. Noted the article, to see if it is possible to predict market behavior, (laughs) this is a marketing study, I love this, by sampling a small group of people, Brian Knudsen at Stanford and his team asked 30 people to consider whether they would fund 36 projects on the Kickstarter website. The brain scans took place as the participants were taking in the pictures and descriptions of each campaign. They were then asked to decide if they would want to fund the project. When the Kickstarter campaign ended a few weeks later, 18 of the projects had gained enough funding to go ahead. Examining the participants' brain scans, the team discovered that activity in a region called the nucleus accumbens had been different when they considered projects that later went on to be successful. The team trained an algorithm to recognize these differences in brain activity and found it was able to forecast which Kickstarter campaign would be funded with 59.1% accuracy, more than would be expected by chance. This contrasted with what the volunteers had consciously thought. When considering each proposal, the volunteers had been asked to rate how much they liked each project and how likely they thought each one was to reach its funding goal. These ratings predicted funding outcomes with only 52.9% accuracy. Newton's team was so surprised by the findings that they repeated the experiment with new participants and new Kickstarter campaigns and got the same results. Now, the rest of the article goes on to speculate a bit on on how this is even possible. And, uh, you know, that's speculation right now. But doesn't this open the door for some things that are really scary? Scan people's brains to decide what will work in terms of marketing so you can better shape said marketing to get what you want. 
The article quotes a Stefan Bode at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He's being very high on all this. He said, if we start to understand the origin of this phenomenon, this will be a great step forward in the field of neural prediction of population behavior and possibly be applicable to other areas such as health and financial decisions. Oh, and oh yeah, I guess he left out marketing decisions. If you're not scared by any of that, how about this one? Over in the UK, health authorities are suggesting that England's National Health Service should take all of our DNA data and record it. And of course, their reasoning is that this will be great. They'll be able to get all kinds of useful data, you know, to help manage people's health. But it'll also allow insurance companies to perhaps deny care to people or direct the health care you're going to get based on some things that may emerge from your DNA. This has to be scary. All right, let's lighten things up just a bit. I hope you took in uh, the initial episode of the ninth season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, dear listener. Pretty funny show, and one cannot uh, assess whether this is going to you know, equal some of his best moments in past seasons, but uh, they're off to a pretty good start, and we'll just have to see. And another bit of follow-up I think we need to do here, which unfortunately isn't, uh, isn't a laugh right like Larry David, is um, a topic near and dear to us we keep harping on, the question of antibiotics in our food. There's a new book out that looks into this. Evidently, it is called Big Chicken. The author is Marin McKenna, and it takes a look at the widespread use of antibiotics in poultry farming. I was not aware of this fact in our previous discussion, but it turns out that uh, most of the antibiotics uh, do, in fact, go into poultry. To quote from The Economist, it was noted that for decades, the demand for meat for the price of bread has overridden other concerns. About 15,000 tons a year, which is a whopping 80% of all antibiotics sold, go to farmers. Chicken farmers use even more than those who raise cattle or pigs. Only a small percentage of the drugs are used to cure illness. Their main function is to make the broilers fatten up more quickly or to act as a prophylactic against the cramped conditions in which they are raised. A chicken's weight at slaughter today is twice what it was 70 years ago, and it achieves such heft in half the time. Yes, as reported on Radio Parallax, I don't know how many times in the past, the fact of the matter is, for reasons that are not perfectly understood, antibiotics cause the animal to put on more meat more quickly. Here's truly suggested to an investigative reporter a year or so ago that if he wanted to get a Pulitzer Prize, he should make a definitive story that traces back an outbreak of bacterial infection to its source at an industrial farm. The Economist does note in its review that any resulting infections resulting from the antibiotics that are uh, fed the animals after which they develop bacterial-resistant bugs are often far removed from the food that caused them which is why it takes some detective work to trace them back. They note that each year, salmonella causes about 1.2 million cases of food poisoning, of which 19,000 result in hospitalizations and 380 in death. That's according to the Center for Disease Control. And I'm sure those numbers refer to, you know, what happens in America. The death rate is highest among children under 5, And the magazine notes most of these illnesses are caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and most of that bacteria comes from industrial-produced chicken. Notes that one villain in McKinnon's account is Thomas Jukes, a British biologist 
who in 1948 tested different supplements, including ones with antibiotics, in the diets of chickens. When he ended his experiment, all the chickens that received supplements had gained at least a little weight, but the ones ingesting antibiotic leftovers had gained by far the most. This was the start of the use of antibiotics to promote growth. Emphasis, promote growth, not treat disease, promote growth. Mr. Jukes realized the bacteria in the chicken's gut would develop resistance, but would not concede the harm this could do, a view he stuck to until his death in 1999. Now, as reported on Radio Parallax previously, this year, the Food and Drug Administration finally came in line with the European Union, which had banned the use of antibiotics for growth promotion in livestock farming 12 years ago. The drugs are allowed for medicinal use, of course, but only under the supervision of a veterinarian. What a concept! There is a bit of a happy ending to this story. Will Harris, who's one of the heroes of the book, now raises his chickens in an organic fashion. Although, back in the day, he employed all of these so-called modern methods to, uh, you know, what was back in the 1970s, an industrial farm that he was running. And he notes to the author that he would have gone broke if he'd started his farming experiment back in the 1970s. But luckily, consumer demand is shifting. His grass-fed beef costs 30% more than grain-fed beef at Whole Foods. And his pork costs 40% more than the mainstream variety. And the price of his chicken is 200% higher. He's not making any money with chicken, which is subsidized by his cattle, but he's hopeful the chicken will again be seen as a special Sunday treat. Last year, Americans ate more than 92 pounds of chicken compared with 28 pounds in 1960. The prices are likely to rise thanks to new regulations, but they conclude by noting that less will be more. And Mr. Miller is querying me at this moment whether antibiotics might be contributing to the massive obesity epidemic in America, and the answer to that is a resounding yes. That's very possible. I would have to agree that theoretically, if you're putting on more muscle mass in pigs, cows, and chickens with antibiotics, well, wouldn't the Arnold Schwarzenegger types out there have found out about this and start popping antibiotics to beef up? Well, knowing how those guys work, and I can't say that I do really know how those guys work, but having observed it from the medical perspective, I would say that there is zero chance that if antibiotics, you know, built your muscle mass, they wouldn't be finding ways to slip bodybuilders' antibiotics big time. So I'm going to rely on their empirical evidence, or implied empirical evidence, that that, in fact, doesn't work for humans. If you have any information to the contrary, dear listener, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Something else we've taken a rather dim view of on this program, which I guess will look even a little bit dimmer right now, uh, is... The fine art of tattooing. Neither Mr. Merlin nor I have tattoos, and we have no intention of getting them. If you have done otherwise, my dear listener, well, that's, that's your business. But please note the following. The tiny toxic particles from Tattoo Inc. can travel through the body and accumulate in your lymph nodes, which could have long-term health consequences, according to a new study. In addition to pigments, Tattoo Ink contains molecules from preservatives and contaminants such as nickel, chromium, manganese, and cobalt. To track where these molecules go, scientists target one of the most common ingredients of Tattoo Ink, which is titanium dioxide, the white pigment that is often mixed with other colors. It's also the 
stuff you rub on your nose that acts as a sunblock without using PABA. At any rate, the researchers used X-ray fluorescence to analyze the lymph nodes of four deceased people who'd had tattoos. Our lymph nodes, of course, serve a critical role in the immune system, filtering toxins and cancer cells and storing immune cells that fight infections. These tests confirmed the accumulation of titanium dioxide nanoparticles in lymph nodes, which suggest contaminants collect in them too. This is according to a report in smithsonian.com. It's unknown how deposits of microscopic contaminants could affect the lymph nodes in the immune system. And the piece quotes uh, the study's co-author Hiram Castillo as saying, when someone wants to get a tattoo, they're often very careful in choosing a parlor where they use sterile needles. <laughs> Duh! But he goes on to say, no one checks the chemical composition of the colors, but our study shows that maybe they should. We must take a, uh, a short break, so let us do so. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett.